first week of every month, we celebrate communion. We take time to remember the Lord's death, and we'll be doing that today. And um, if you are a follower of Christ, we'll welcome you to join us for that when we uh, take time to remember Jesus' death. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12. We're going to talk about what it means to be rich on being rich. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. A poll that was conducted by Zogby Analytics a few years back identified greed and materialism as the number one most urgent problem in American culture. You can tell that's a couple of years old because we've got a whole lot of other problems that have uh, surfaced since then. At that time, they rated poverty and economic justice as the second most significant moral issue. In 2014, Vanity Fair had a poll that stated that 78% of Americans disagreed with this famous quote. Uh, it's from uh, the movie Wall Street. And Gordon Gecko, the character, said, greed is good. So 78% disagreed with that, and 19% agreed with that statement. In another poll done by the magazine The Economist, readers were asked the question, what is the deadliest sin out of the seven deadly sins? What is the deadliest sin? And in this poll, greed ranked number one. Although uh, people believe that greed is a major problem, most people don't think that they are greedy. I don't know about you. Do you ever think about being greedy? When uh, the BBC conducted a poll on the seven deadly sins, um, and, you know, anger, envy, gluttony, greed, lust, pride, and sloth, named the seven deadly sins, the one that came out last... In other words, which one are you most likely or which ones are you most likely to commit? Greed came out as the seventh one on the list. Tim Keller writes, even though it is clear the world, the world is full of greed and materialism, almost no one thinks it is true of them. Further, he writes, greed hides itself from its victim. We have a tendency to not think of ourselves as greedy. So just a little practical question. When is the last time you thought that you might be greedy? Today we're going to talk about greed. And we're going to talk about money and stuff. And we're going to talk about Jesus. Because they all go together. Jesus gave us 38 parables, at least that we have recorded in the Gospels. 16 of them talk about money and stuff. Um, one out of 10 verses in the Gospels, that's 288 if you want to count them, talk about money and stuff. Uh, in the Bible, if you uh, kind of trace through your uh, concordance, there are uh, about 500 verses on prayer, because that's really important. There are about 500 verses on faith that relates to believe and trust. 
That's really important. And there's about 2,000 verses on money and stuff because that's really important. Um, so if you're one of those people that when you come to church and they're going to say, oh, no, he's going to talk about money, this is the day. <laughs> so Luke chapter 12. Let's just read the passage. Luke chapter 12. We're going to begin at verse 13. Here it's called the parable of the rich fool. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Okay, that's our passage. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And we begin with the problem of greed in verses 13 through 15. I would encourage you, if you'd like to uh, follow along on an outline, and some of you like to take notes, and by that's probably the best way proven to, to learn, but you don't have to take notes. You don't have to open your Bible. If you want to see what God says, I would encourage you to follow along in your scripture. And if you don't have the Bible downloaded to your smartphone yes, yet, download the U version. I'd highly recommend it. A uh, little context here in chapter 11. If you remember, Jesus um, challenged the religious leaders. He was invited to someone's home for dinner, and he just opened up to the religious leaders. He wasn't very gracious. He was just primarily unloading truth. You know, a lot of times we see Jesus overly gracious with people. He was full of grace and truth. On that occasion, he was just speaking the truth the way it was. In chapter 12, Jesus warned his audience. Huge crowd in the thousands had gathered. He warned his audience about the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of his, of his days. And he taught them about a proper respect and the fear of God and to fear really nothing else. And that brings us to our passage today. We see the situation begins in verses 13 and 14. Someone in the crowd said, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So when you think about this, there are thousands of people there. Jesus has been proclaiming the kingdom of God. And as he's been doing that, he's also been performing, performing miracles, delivering uh, people from demonic influence. This is the father's work. This is the work that his father has given him to do. And now he's interrupted by this man, and this man 
has a, a problem, he has a need, and he wants Jesus to fix it. And, you know, it's good to go to Jesus, right? To, when, you, when you have something you need. He thinks that this man thinks his life is unfair because apparently his father died and now the inheritance is somehow not fair. And so he wants Jesus to settle the matter. And by the way, rabbis in the first century often did uh, help settle matters of law. And so uh, he comes to Jesus. Verse 14 Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Jesus, I mean, he just wants help. But that's not why Jesus came, to settle matters of law between fighting brothers or quarreling brothers. Jesus knew what was in people's hearts. We learn from the Gospels. You know what? This man really didn't want Jesus to decide and listen to the case and make a fair statement of justice. This man wanted Jesus to help him get what he wanted. He wasn't concerned about his brother. He was just concerned about what he wanted. Um, this man wasn't really interested in Jesus' teaching. He wasn't interested in the kingdom of God and what was involved in the living, a lifestyle for the kingdom of God. Jesus sees a bigger problem in this situation. And he gives us a warning in verse 15. He said to them, watch out. Now he's talking to the whole group. He says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Is that what's in this man's heart? We don't know the whole story. But Jesus warns his audience. He warns us to be on our guard for all kinds of greed. Greed comes in many forms. Why does Jesus warn about greed? Well, it's because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And when we get a focus on money and stuff, things that we want... We begin to lose our focus on what's really important. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. There is a danger to elevate money and stuff to a position it has no right being in. Life is not about accumulating wealth and stuff. It's not about having the latest technology, the latest smartphone, the latest computer game, um, the latest deer rifle or the better car or the newer car or a better Harley. I just want to make sure I'm including myself here. <laughs> Life is about loving God first. As a matter of fact, when I started looking to buy a motorcycle, I, had to, I changed my password on my bank account to Exodus 23. Because of that temptation, God says, no other gods before me, because I was thinking a whole lot about one thing, and I'd remind myself over and over. Life is about loving God first and putting God first. 
I like to quote from Haddon Robinson, a former professor of mine at Dallas Seminary, and he went on to be a president of Denver Seminary and Gordon Conwell Seminary. He said, greed is wanting more and more of what you have enough already. And that's really a good definition, even from a Greek lexicon. Greek is wanting more and more of what you have enough of already. But one of our problems is, is how much is enough? I mean, gee, I'm not, I'm not wealthy and I'm not spending a whole lot of money. I, but are you content? Are you satisfied with what God has provided for you? Are you okay with God and what he's provided for you? At what point? I'm not saying that we all don't have legitimate needs. I'm not saying that at all. But it's just so easy to slide. It's easy for me to be sloppy sometimes because I just, I forget. I just get busy thinking about nice things. Sometimes they're motorcycles. Um, but greed is wanting more and more of what you have enough of already. And, you know, I think in the American church, we have a way of dumbing down things. And what we do is we compare ourselves with others. And we come up with, at least I'm not as bad as them. Because look what they do. Because they're flaunting. I don't do that. But this isn't about what possessions we have or what possessions we don't have. It's about hearts. Um, an article in the Atlantic titled, We Are All Accumulating Mountains of Things, describes how online shopping... And the ability to buy things cheap has enabled Americans to be hoarders. Isn't it neat how easy it is to shop online? You can, you can shop, you can find the same product as in the safe your home. I like it. Um, the average American owns 7.4 pairs of shoes. Now, I know you're not average and I'm not average because we don't own that much, right? But there, this is what's happening in our culture. Now, we're a part of it in different ways. We all have ways that we uh, sort of operate. What are, what are the things that are important? In 2017, Americans spent $240 billion on jewelry, watches, books, luggage, phones, um, communication devices, which is twice the amount of 2002. Um, there's just been a kind of a change. And, you know, one of the issues we face, like, so 2008, 2009, we went through a downturn, and it's taken years to come out, and it's sort of like, well, we had this hard time, and now we've got to catch up. And uh, it's easy to focus on money and stuff. Um, Mark Cohen, who's director of retail studies at Columbia University in the grad school, in the business school, when students came to class, he asked them, uh, how many items do you have in your possession right now? And he was talking about, you know, think in terms of your cell phones and uh, your, the cords you're carrying and the number of things that are in your backpack. And it averaged uh, just about 50 items per student that they were carrying. I'm not trying to say that's bad or evil or anything like that. It's just 
We in this country have an amazing ability to accumulate because of wealth, even though we don't think we're wealthy. Um, our houses are getting larger. We got, there's proof of that. Um, Self-storage units have doubled since Y2K. 52,000, over 52,000 self-storage units because we've got to have places for stuff. Daryl Bach, in his commentary on Luke, writes, The essence of greed is keeping what resources God brings your way for yourself. The essence of greed. Making it about us. God's people have always been aware of this problem of greed because of, in the Old Testament, God warned about that. Deuteronomy 5.21, this is uh, in the list of the Ten Commandments. You can find the Ten Commandments in Exodus, uh, Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20. And God said, you shall not, this is to his people, if you're one of God's people, this is still true, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land. That's property. His male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. God understood something about our hearts when we start focusing on stuff or even people. Um. And this, the, the word in the Old Testament that describes greed is covetousness. This thing of wanting something else. And it's a lack of contentment. It's about not being satisfied with what God has provided or in the timing that God provides. Colossians, in the New Testament, it's also true. There are many passages in the New Testament that speak of greed. I'll just look at Colossians 3.5. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells the church to people who are Christians, put to death, push these down. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, they don't belong in a, to, in a lifestyle of a Christ follower. It's sexual immorality uh, and impurity, uh, lust, evil desires, and greed. And please notice that last one, and greed, which is idolatry. It's Greed is when you put something up before God. He is number one. He wants first place. And greed is when we let something else uh, go in God's place, especially when it comes to money and stuff. Okay, so now Jesus has... uh, a little story to tell us. It's called a parable in verses 16 through 21. And uh, this is usually called the parable of the rich fool, which is a very good name. Uh, I'm just calling it the parable for getting rich. We meet the uh, rich man in verse 16. So Jesus told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. So this is a story and the story is to make a point. It's a story from everyday first century life. And it's, the purpose is to present a spiritual truth. It explains God's value values in his kingdom. It talks about the ground of a certain rich man had yielded uh, an abundant crop. That's good. 
Uh, this is success. This is reward for the effort. This is prosperity. And you know what? There's nothing wrong here. Nothing wrong with success and prosperity. Um, but the problem in verse 17, because success has a way of creating a new set of circumstances with potential problems. Verse 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. So not enough storage. He needs a new self-storage unit. And so he's going to tear down the old and build new. We get to see inside this man's head, we get to see him make a plan to solve his problem. And you may already see it coming and you may already know how the story develops and what it is, what's happening right here. We, he, he, uh, he, he deals with this problem. What shall I do? Good question. And I have no place to store my crops. That's the problem. And so we see his solution in verses 18 and 19. Pay careful attention to his line of reasoning. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. What's wrong with that? Verse 19, And, and I'll say to myself, You, self, good job. You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. This is the American dream. Be successful. Plan ahead. Accumulate wealth. Be comfortable. Comfort is a driving force in our lives. And your life will be good. We want that. Good life. But Jesus tells a story, and he leaves out a very important part. Not Jesus, but the man. He doesn't take time to consult with his creator. He says, this is what I'll do. I will tear down. I will store my surplus. I will say to myself, because life is about me, 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 and my, my stuff. The failure of success, verse 20, but God said to him, you fool. How would you like to get to heaven one day and God says to you, you're foolish. You've been a fool. You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you and then who will get for what you've prepared for yourself? Nobody. Oh, you might have family that's going to get it. God has not had much to do with this plan for success. Jesus now brings reality to the picture when he says, but God said, you are a fool. This is stupid. This is stupid when you make decisions without God and his provision for your life. Verse 21, we have the point of the story. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. 
You know, just imagine for a minute. Right now, this is it. Your last day on earth. God calls you home. It's your day. It's your time. What will he say to you? And one of the things that's going to be important, there's a lot of things that we stand, every, everybody who's a Christ follower is going to stand before Jesus. And everybody who's a Christ follower, if you're born again, you're going to go to heaven. But every one of us who is a Christ follower, one day when we meet Jesus, are going to have to give an accounting for our lives. And yes, we can be in heaven for eternity and be in his presence, and that's going to be good. And to know that our sins are forgiven, that Jesus paid the price. But he's going to want, how did we handle what he provided for us? Did we acknowledge where provision for our lives came from? Were we thankful for how God worked in our lives? Did we set aside something for him? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. God is looking for people who will be rich toward him. God is a generous God. And God wants his people to be like him and to be generous with resources. Um, question for us. How do you feel about your money, your possessions, and your resources? This is an emotional question. How do you feel? I don't ask those kinds of questions very often. How do you feel? When you think about your job and your possessions and your retirement and your accounts, are they yours? How did you get them? Did you earn these? Do you deserve these? Deuteronomy 8 is a great passage where God reminds his people to remember how God provided them in the past. The danger is going into this good land he's giving them. The danger is saying, I did this with my hands and I built these houses and I have all of this success and forget the Lord your God. That was a danger. Psalm 24, 1 says this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. That's sort of the basis for theology about money and stuff. God is the creator and owner. And uh, God has appointed us to be stewards and managers of what he's provided. He wants us to care for uh, our world and care for what he has given us. And he wants us to manage it. And, and we can, I mean, he, God's okay with possessions and success and resources and prosperity. God's okay with that. And God is okay if you have a nice life and nice things. God is okay with that. But he wants you to remember him. Second question is this. We're supposed to be rich toward God. How can we be rich toward God? How do we be rich toward God? 
Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, these are the words of Jesus. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. And by the way, the word treasures there, it means cash. It means money. It's not, it's not so much, it's about stuff. It's about how you use your money. It isn't about your time, and it isn't about your treasure. This is about financial resources. He says, don't store up, don't make life about this stuff because they're temporary, where moth and, moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Next slide. Where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So he's saying there's got to be a part of life if we're going to be rich toward God, where we're laying up treasure in heaven. That is, we're, we're setting aside some of our resources for God and for Him to use them as He wants to. That's uh, what it means to lay up treasure for Him. Um, and then Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Do you believe that? Do you believe what Jesus said about your heart and your treasure? I'm going to jump to Philippians 4.17. And the Apostle Paul picks up a, something important here for us to see. There are two things in this passage. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. And the first thing I want us to see is so uh, the Apostle Paul had received a financial gift uh, from the uh, Macedonians. He received this uh, financial gift, and he is thankful for it. And he says, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. And he's not talking about um, the missionary's headquarters account. He's talking about an account in heaven because God is keeping track of their financial gifts, and more will be accredited to their account. This laying up treasure in heaven. He says, I've received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I receive from you, receive from Epaphroditus, the gifts you sent. Next slide. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. That's the second thing I wanted you to see. Generosity toward God. God receives as a fragrant aroma. That's a picture of something that he enjoys, a sacrifice that has been made for him and that brings him pleasure. And it's well-pleasing. And that, by the way, there's just this promise on the end, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus for that generous heart. Promise for this generous heart, God will provide for all their needs. Now back to Jesus and Matthew 6, 24. Uh, Jesus said, after that Matthew 6, where he talks about laying up treasure, he says, no one can serve two masters. And I am convinced in the American church we think we can. I'm tempted with this. Sometimes I'm tempted with, oh, I can 
buy nice things and think about all these things and I can give a little money to God. And I can do both. Jesus said, no, you can't. You're going you're gonna to have to choose. You're going to be devoted to one. You can't serve both God and money. 2 Corinthians 8, 7. To the church at Corinth, to the believers, but since you excel in everything, church, because you excel in faith, you excel in your speech, you excel in your knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. And so he wants this church to excel in being generous, being rich toward God, because they were lacking, because they needed to be generous. They had a tendency to be concerned first for themselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. The Apostle Paul to the very same church in the next chapter, because the Apostle Paul devotes two chapters in 2 Corinthians to the subject of generosity toward God. The subject of being rich toward God. 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9. The Apostle Paul writes, remember this, whoever sows sparingly, he's talking about laying up treasure, he's talking about giving financial gifts to God, will reap, if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously financially to God will also reap generously from God. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart. There's a principle here. If you're stingy with God, expect God to be stingy with you. And I, I, would, I have no desire to guilt anyone into being generous with God. It's got to come from your heart, nobody else's. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. It's up to you, your heart. Decide. Not deciding is not following through. Next slide. Don't give reluctantly or under compulsion. Don't be guilted into this, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's what God wants. He wants your heart to say, Lord, I love to give back to you. Thank you for what you give to me. And God is able to bless you abundantly. Here's a promise, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Not necessarily having everything you want, but you're going to be equipped to abound in every good work. Malachi chapter 3, back to the Old Testament. Good question here. This is God speaking, by the way, in Malachi 3. Will a mere mortal rob God? And God says, yet you rob me. But you ask, there's a dialogue going on in heaven, how are we robbing you? God says, in tithes and offerings. So my question here is, I'm not worried about what the Old Testament says or what the New Testament says, because the Old Testament had tithing, and, the old, and so there were three tithes. 
there was uh, 10% off of your income, and then there was 10% off of what you had left, 90% of your income, and then every third year, there was another tithe, and it averages about 22.5% a year. That was the Old Testament tithe. Now, I'm not worried about percentages for you, and I'm not going to say, well, this is what you have to do. Um, But my question is this, is it possible in the New Testament that we can rob God? Because it was possible in the Old Testament for people who held back resources, and God says, you're robbing me. And so in verse 10, God gives his people a challenge. He says, Malachi 3.10, next slide, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, because that was their custom in Jerusalem. They were to bring a tenth uh, and give it to God in uh, the temple. That was the clearinghouse. That was the central place they were to come. And, um, and by the way, I think the central place in the New Testament you see is the church. It's always the church because that, that was the primary uh, God's plan for making disciples. And there, are other, there are lots of other good things you can give to, but the primary one starts with the church. And he said, bring in the whole tithe. Don't hold back into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. There will be resources in my place. Test me in this, God says. This is the only chance you get to test God. It's the only time God says, it's okay, you can test me. Test me in this, about generosity. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be, not be room enough for you to store it. God wants you to test him about generosity. It's your heart. It's your decision. It's not about guilt. It's you thinking it through, deciding. One of the things I'd like you to do is I'd like you, would you, if you consider yourself a serious follower of Christ, would you take some time today, this week, and look at your financial picture? How can you take steps to be generous with God? Maybe more generous with God. It's your call. But, but you're going to have to think about it. It's not just, okay, I feel guilty and I put in a check. No, come up with a plan. Make a decision. Some of you probably do need to put money in the offering next week, and you haven't. Some of you just need to make a plan in managing your resources and manage your money so you can free up to be more generous with God. It's your call. Today we're going to close our service with a time of communion, a, a time to remember. And 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this. This is in the giving chapter, by the way. This is right, bef- uh, right after um, the Apostle Paul says to excel in the grace of giving. Excel. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, because he was in heaven and uh, he was the son of God, and he had all kinds of servants in his kingdom in heaven, and he came to the earth, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. He became an infant born in Bethlehem, and he grew up and He was a working man. He was a carpenter. And then he announced the kingdom of God. And then he died on the cross and he paid the penalty for our sins. So that you, through his poverty, through his sacrifice, through his taking on this humble servant, so that we could become rich. This isn't about our pocketbook. This is about the gift of eternal salvation. That we are rich in God's kingdom because we have his resources. We have heaven for an eternity. We are in the family of God. Our sins are forgiven. And the the Apostle Paul would say, Excel in the grace of giving. We are going to remember the Lord's death. It's a time when the church, those who call themselves followers of Christ, take some time to reflect. The Apostle Paul says, remember. Jesus told us to remember. And so it's been the practice of the church for 2,000 years to stop because we forget Jesus Christ died on the cross and he paid the penalty for our sins. He paid the penalty for every person in this room. And you only benefit when you place your faith in Christ and receive forgiveness and eternal life. The Bible calls that being born again. And we take this time to stop and, okay, we're going to take a little piece of bread. And when we hold it, it's a picture of the body of Christ broken for us. We are just to remember and think about, he died for me. He took my place. I deserve the death. The wages of sin is death. And then we take the cup, and we're going to take a little cup of grape juice. It's okay to have wine, but we practice with grape juice. And the point is to remember his death. It isn't, okay, it's alcohol, non-alcohol. It doesn't make any difference. They're both good. Remember his death. He died. His blood was poured out for us. His blood was a payment for our sin. And it ought to cause us to be humble. It ought to cause us to be thank you, thankful to God. And uh, God says, before you do this, just want to make sure you're okay with me. And he says that we should examine ourselves. So, If there is any sin among us, that that sin is confessed to God. And so let's do, let's pause right now before God, before we take this time of communion, before we remember the death of Jesus together as his church. Let's allow God to look at our hearts. Just silently and privately invite him to look at your hearts. And ask him to show you if there's anything 
that's not pleasing to him. Sin that's not been confessed. Any attitudes that dishonor God. Maybe dishonor your family or friends. Maybe it's uh, being selfish with God when it comes to your money. Maybe it's your thought life. Maybe it's your language, your words, speech. Maybe it's outbursts of anger. Ask God to show you. Be honest with him and confess your sin to him. Confession is just agreeing with God and saying, yes, God, that's true. I have sinned, and this is it. Be specific. And then embrace this promise. As you confess your sin, 1 John 1, 9 says, if... We confess our sins. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. The condition is we must confess our sin. The promise is forgiveness. The promise for you right now is God has forgiven you for your sins, for the sins you confessed if you've been totally honest with him. And you're forgiven and you stand clean before him. Father, right now we want to thank you for the bread that represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that Jesus was rich and he became poor on our behalf so that we could be rich. And we in the American church are rich compared to the rest of the world, and we know it. Thank you, God, for the cup that represents the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross when he was nailed to the cross. Thank you that Jesus died in our place. He paid our price. We humbly say thank you, God. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.